Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Herod Antipas the king soon heard about Jesus because everyone was talking about him. Some were saying, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's why he can do such miracles. Others said he's a prophet Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet like the other great prophets of the past. When Herod heard about Jesus, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has come back from the dead. For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But without Herod's approval, she was powerless, for Herod respected John, and knowing that he was a good and holy man, he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. Herodias's chance finally came on Herod's birthday. He gave a party for his high government officials, army officers, and the leading citizens of Galilee. And then his daughter, also named Herodias, came in and performed a dance that greatly pleased Herod and his guests. Ask me for anything you like, the king said to the girl, and I will give it to you. He even vowed, I will give you whatever you ask, up to half my kingdom. She went out and asked her mother, what should I ask for? Her mother told her, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the girl hurried back to the king and told him, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a tray. And the king deeply regretted, regretted what he had said, but because of the vows he had made in front of his guests, he couldn't refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner to the prison to cut off John's head and to bring it to him. The soldier beheaded John in the prison, brought his head on a tray, and gave it to the girl who took it to her mother. And when John's disciples heard what had happened, they came to get his body and buried it in a tomb. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Jesus in this story. I don't know if you noticed. Not a lot of good news. Kind of rough. Of course, I'm going to preach on it. Um, typical. Uh, yeah, so I love this story. This is one of my favorites. I, I wrote about it in my, my first book. Um, so, one of the first things I'm going to tell you is um, the Herodians were not very creative in naming themselves. Um, so we've got Herod in this story. This is not the Herod you're thinking of, probably. Not the one who met with the Magi and who had all the little baby boys killed to get at Jesus. Not Herod the Great, who built all the things and apparently knew Cleopatra and Mark Antony and all those people. Not that guy. His son, also named Herod. Not as great. I mean, great. It's a, anyway. Herod is just okay. Let's call him. He's all right. He's not good at what he does, mostly. Uh, he's also not even a king. Uh, the first one was a king, and then Rome came in, and so this Herod is the Tetrarch, which kind of means fancy manager. So he doesn't even get to be claiming the title of king. Um, he has a brother, also named Herod. There's some other Herods in the family as well. Uh, the brother married a woman with his niece or something like that. Uh, her name was Herodias. Uh, and then uh, when, this, when 
her husband's brother got bored of his wife and saw Herodias. He's like, ooh, I'm going to marry her. So she got a divorce. They married. So Herodias is now married two different Herods who are brothers. Uh, she and her first husband, Herod, had a daughter who they named Herodias. Guys, come on. A little creativity would be really helpful here. Uh, luckily, they did nickname her Salome, so we do have a little bit of distinction there. Uh, perhaps some of you recognize the name Salome. We'll get to it. Um, it's a rough story. There's a lot of stuff going on here. Anyway, we've got this family who don't have as much power as they once did. Um, and then you've also got this dude, John the Baptist, out in the desert, wearing camel hair and eating locusts and, like, yelling a lot. And it's awkward. Uh, he's weird, which, you know, there's lots of weird people. There's lots of weird people who yell. It's fine. Uh, except this guy has some very intense sermons uh, about the evils of this modern generation. Whatever it is you do, it is wrong, you vipers. It's very exciting. Lots of people go out to see him and cheer him on. He's clearly not talking about us. He's talking about other people. Uh, but also, like, this, is a, this guy is a very powerful preacher. Lots of people are, in fact, coming to the faith because of him. Um, which is, uh, depending on your opinion as the person in charge, may be a good or a bad thing. He also has some sermons about the evils of the people in power. Ooh, okay, Herod and Herodias are not big fans of that. Not just the evils of the people in power, but you should not be marrying your brother's wife. I don't know who that applies to. You shouldn't. This is part of the, the law at the time. Um, and he's very public about this. Herodias is not a fan of being called nasty names. Herod's not either being thrilled about being called out as a sinner. But he's also kind of fascinated by John the Baptizer. Like, this guy is really interesting. And I, I love that Scripture tells us this. I love to imagine the two of them staying up nights after Herodias has gone to bed, like, solving the problems of the world over a glass of scotch. I just think that would be so fascinating. I want to know what they talked about. Anyway, Herod is fascinated by this guy. Fast forward, they have a big party. The thing that happens in Scripture, probably in your life too. Uh, they have this big, big party, and everybody's drinking a lot. And Herodias is like, this is my chance. Um, possibly her daughter was, was very much in on this. We don't really know. Uh, but they come up with a plan. They're like, we are going to get John the Baptist. Not sure why they think this plan is going to work, but it does. Uh, they send Herodias the Younger, Salome, in to do a dance. Now, I just want to be clear, this is not a cute, like, I can't have dance. Uh, this is not a cute, like, twirling little girl for us to go, aw. She's probably 19. Uh, she's, very, she's married, historically. Um, probably well aware of her body. Um, so, it probably is what you're thinking. Um, not the first one of its kind, but uh, a famous one. Dance of the Seven Veils, some people call it. Anyway, she comes into this party and she dances. And she must be amazing because at the end of this dance, Herod's like... Half my kingdom. No, he's not a king, but whatever. Half my kingdom I will give you. Wow. That's some dance. 
did they plan this in advance? I don't know. She goes to mom and is like, are, are we sure this is what we're doing? We good? Yeah. She comes back and says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the king is sad about this because he said in front of everybody, apparently you can't go back on your word in that kind of situation. I would think that you could, but whatever. He's made this vow in front of the whole party that he'll give her whatever she asked for. She asked for John the Baptist's head on the platter. He's got to do it. And then John the Baptist is killed in prison, and it's all very sad. And that's the end of the story. It's not the end of the story, right? Like, we know the way our lectionary works. They have to cut it somewhere, or else we're just going to keep reading the whole book. There's more to the story, and definitely a part of the story is sort of about um, the difficulty of the message that John the Baptist had to share with people, the challenge of it. And it shares as well the difficulty of the message Jesus had to share. There's something beyond this political power, right? And when we're in power, we don't want to hear that. Because there's no Jesus in there. That doesn't happen very often. It's sort of a quick side note here. This does not happen very often in our lectionary that we get a reading where there is no good news in this. That is really rare. We'll find some. Don't worry. Um... But this is a story about politics, right? This is a story uh, where the women, Herodias and Herodias, they don't have any power at the time. They, they were, I mean, they probably had a little bit, but they weren't, as it were, elected to the House of Representatives or on their local school board or whatever, right? Like, there's, it's not that kind of power. They're behind the scenes. They have to find what they can do. Um, kind of like, remember the story of Esther saving her people, the Jews, uh, from, from extermination in that book? She does this sort of behind the scenes. She has a state dinner, basically, for her husband, the king. It's that kind of thing. And they're trying to change the political landscape. This guy is a problem. He is saying things about the way we're governing and the way we are working in the world, and we can't have this. We need to stabilize what we're doing. Maybe even, who knows, maybe even Herodias and Herod were hoping to get rid of the Roman occupiers. Maybe that was a thing. Don't know. They were trying to change the landscape, and John was the threat. Except he's not really the threat. We know that. Jesus is the one who's coming after and saying some even more difficult things. Anyway, they used the power they had to try to change things. And it's admirable, even though they're not really meant to be role models, let's be clear. The story is not, yay, Herodias. Um... How do we change things on a large scale? That's a lot of what this story is about. It's about politics, which sometimes feels like a bad word. We're going to talk about that. How do we change things on a large scale? That's that's a lot. There's a lot out there that seems insurmountable. How in the world can we talk to each other? How in the world can we change these things? How do we interact with the world? Politics are everywhere. I mean, obviously, elections. That's easy. But, like, social issues. School board levies. Even the color of the carpet in a church. Or the color of the walls. Can be political. And yes, there are politics in the church. So many. Remember Constantine, the first Christian emperor? He became Christian on his deathbed to cement his own power and the power of his dynasty. 
and to lend stability to the empire. Queen Elizabeth I, famously, popes have consecrated kings for centuries. And there's lots of uh, examples in our day-to-day life. How, this is a, this is a moment from my, my previous job when I was a youth pastor at my old church. Um, we wanted to play capture the flag in the sanctuary. It was great. Big fun. But how do you affirm both that this sacred space is for those kids, for those students, and that it is a space of fun and delight and excitement, and also affirm the sacredness of the space, the recognition that lots of stuff happens in here, and affirm the work that the altar guild does, right? It's politics. How we navigate that is politics. How do you run a building campaign to get more much-needed space for mission work and not get caught up with naming rights and making the wealthy donors happy? politics. How do we exist as a spiritual body out in the world where our thoughts about compassion and unity and justice are looked at with doubt given our history of violence? When I go onto campus wearing this, some people go, oh, cool, where do you work? Definitely go into some offices where I get a, what are you doing here? So what, what is politics? They say that politics is the art of the possible, which I love that definition. I don't know about you guys. I love that that feels hopeful. It feels creative rather than kind of oppressive, right? I suspect more often folks understand politics as um, specifically how decisions are made in government, in particular sort of a debate between groups who are seeking power, right? And maybe even further, politics are necessarily full of conflict and waffling and trying to get power over someone. Does that sound right to you? Does that sound like what we see, what we experience? Like, politics means my perspective is the right one, and you're wrong and therefore bad for disagreeing with me. That, that feels uncomfortable, right? That kind of, that's what it feels like to me sometimes when I watch the news. If I don't agree with whoever's talking, I'm bad. When I first started talking about politics in this sermon, did your body clench up a little bit thinking about it? Thinking about the conflict you might have with me or somebody else in the public sphere? Ugh, don't bring that ugliness in here. There. I don't want to do that. I don't want that ugliness. Politics itself can be good or bad depending on how we use it, how we respond to it, right? If we're in that space of you're bad, that's not helpful. Scripture is very much not a fan of Herodias, for example. That is a toxic experience, toxic experience of politics and decision making. But isn't communal decision-making for the good of the people? Isn't that also what politics is? How do we figure out how to overlap and how to do good things for everybody? 
like naming where the hurt is in the community so we can start to heal it. Feels like a good thing. Might be hard. Feels like a good thing. So let me try this example. I imagine that we would all agree that poverty is bad. It's a problem for sure. And it's been around obviously forever and ever. We want everyone to be able to live and give and love deeply, right? But how? How do we do it? We disagree about the process. We disagree about what makes sense. And so we need to have conversations. <laughs> I've heard it said that um, our Constitution, certainly true of the Episcopal Church's Constitution, but that our national Constitution is designed so that we have to talk to each other for a long time before we can actually do anything. I think you could see that <laughs> in the news. It does take us a long time. But like if that was intentional, we have to talk to each other. We have to work through that politics. How do we listen to each other? Maybe, maybe I'm naive here. Maybe y'all are listening to me do this and go like, that's not what politics is. It's, it's, you're, you're being too kind to us. Maybe it is, in fact, all about conflict. And, and there's no, no positive side to it. I don't know that it has to be. I think there's lots of bits of, of uh, politics that's honestly really boring. Robert's Rules, anyone? It was literally once at a diocesan convention where we had to, uh, it was like 200 people there, we had to break into a committee of the whole and have a conversation and then come back from committee, which was all the same people, and give a report to the convention from the committee, which was all the same people. Why are we so But this is how we do it, these, these conversations, right? So this is important. A friend of mine once told me, years and years ago, the presence of Jesus is not the absence of conflict. The presence of Jesus is not the absence of conflict. I mean, look at his life. He did, he did bring peace where he went, but he also brought a sword. Even in conflict, maybe especially in conflict, in the midst of political disagreement, whatever kind of political disagreement it is, Jesus is with us. There is possibility. One of my favorite words. So just for a moment, just imagine in your head for a second. We can completely ignore the word politics if you like. Take it off the table. Imagine just for a second this phrase, the art of the possible. What is possible in this moment? What is God inviting us into? Oftentimes at the beginning of my sermons, I will uh, say, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, which is a Hebrew prayer. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of eternity. HaOlam is eternity. Um, so like lots of languages, words mean lots of things. And HaOlam doesn't just mean this kind of eternity, right? Infinite length of time. It means infinite depth. Every moment is an infinite possibility that God is in. Every one of those things, this moment, 
in this moment, in this moment. What is the possibility right now that God is inviting us into? These decisions that we make as a group, this this church, this country, this humanity, God cares about them. God has a stake in what we decide and how we decide. And God is with us always, 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 nudging and revealing and grieving and celebrating. God is always desiring more for us, more life, more generosity, more love. When we stand up for justice and when we don't, God is with us. When we notice our own self-interest and when we don't, God is with us. When we embody the fruits of the Spirit and when we don't, God is with us. Do you remember in these recent weeks we've talked about the farmer sowing seeds? God is always growing things. In this congregation, in our streets, even in our government, believe it or not, in our hearts. This gospel is a lot to take in. Feels like precious little good news, and maybe it feels that way about the world as well. This is your invitation. Can we hold everything that is dear to us? Can imagine everything for yourself in your hand. Can we hold all of that loosely with love? And can we offer all of that back to God, who is the one in whom we live and move and have our being? Amen.